We all know real life can suck sometimes, and your boss accidentally seeing you in your underpants on Zoom last week doesn't help any. That's why reluctantly codependent sisters, the Shira and Rashalia, keep you enthralled and in stitches every week with their podcast, Legendary Africa. Every Monday and Friday, we take you on a journey of mythical lands, magical objects, and monstrous creatures, both ancient and modern. Find Legendary Africa on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you feed your ears. And remember, stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary. Hello and welcome to the Monster Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Tanner. In this episode, we talk about the monsters in Connecticut. But as always, let's start with a little history lesson. It's from history.com and it was published on August 21st, 2018. One of the original 13 colonies and one of the new six New England states, Connecticut is located in the northeastern corner of the country. Initially, agricultural community by the mid-19th century, textile and machine manufacturing have become the dominant industries. The home of Eli Whitney and Samuel Colt, Connecticut was a leading manufacturer of guns and other arms. Today, Connecticut lies in the midst of the great urban industrial complex along the Atlantic coast, bordering Massachusetts, Massachusetts to the north, Rhode Island to the east, Long Island south to the south, and New York to the west. Hartford, in the north central part of the state, is the capital. Which, by the way, like most cap- state capitals are like in the middle of the, middle of the state. Like it's more like a military thing. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? The state is roughly rectangular in shape with a panhandle extending to the southwest on the New York border. In area, it is the third smallest U.S. state, but it ranks among the most densely populated. The state's greatest east-west length is about 110 miles. Its maximum north-south extent is about 70 miles. Connecticut takes its name from an Alcuinian ward, meaning land on the Long Tidal River. No mistake, Constitution State and land of steady habits are all nicknames that have been applied to Connecticut. Connecticut being state on January 9th, 1788. The capital is Harford. It has a population of 3,574,097 people, according to a 2010 census. It is 5,544 square miles in area and size. It is nicknamed the Constitution State, Nutmeg State, Land of State Habits, and Provision State. The state motto is Qui Transitud. I can't freaking say Latin. Qui Transitud Sustenant. He who transplanted still sustains. The state tree is the white oak. The state flower is the mountain laurel. The state bird is the American robin. The fundamental orders was the first constitution to be adopted by the American colonies in 1639. It established the structure and boundaries of the newly formed government and ensured the rights of free men to elect their public officials. Principles that were later embraced with the U.S. Constitution. During a candlelit dispute that occurred when Sir Edmund Andrews attempted to seize Connecticut's royal char- charter by order of King James II in 1687, the lights went out and the charter was whisked away to safety amid the chaos. Captain Joseph w- Wadsworth hid the charter inside a grand, oak, grand white oak tree, which became a symbol of freedom and later the official state tree. Benedict Arnold, whose name has become synonymous with the word traitor, as he expired with the British to turn over the post at West Point in exchange for money and a command in the British Army, was born in Norwich, Connecticut. In 1781, he led British troops in the Battle of Groton Heights, which devastated New London, Connecticut. The, uh, the construction of Connecticut's old state house was completed in 1796. In 1840, 1814, he hosted the Hartford Convention, a meeting of Ferris Lear, First leaders in which the adoption of seven proposed amendments to the Constitution 
considered by many to be treasonous. Connecticut and Rhode Island were the only two states that failed to ratify the 18th Amendment, which prohibited the manufacturer's sale or transportation of alcohol. Yeah, they to get fucking booze, man. Stupid. USS Nautilus, the world's first nuclear submarine, was constructed in Groton, Connecticut between 1952 and 1954. Much larger than its diesel predecessors, it traveled at speeds in excess of 20 knots and could remain submerged almost indefinitely because its atomic engine required only a very small quantity of nuclear fuel and no air. After 25 years of service, the Nautilus was decommissioned and opened to the public as an exhibit in Groton. The Connecticut-born revolutionary soldier and spy Nathan Hale, who was hanged by the British in 1776, became Connecticut's official state hero in 1985. Nathan Hale. Is he the guy from freaking Assassin's Creed 3? Uh, yeah. In case you're wondering where you can listen to Monster Lunch Podcasts, you can find the Monster Lunch Podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcasts, and Radio Public. If you want to submit your stories or keep updated on upcoming episodes, join the Monster Lunch Podcast Facebook group or follow on Twitter at Monster Lunch P. Want to send an email? May sent to monsterlizardpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Anyway. Alright, let's get into these monsters now. Um, and this from damnconnecticut.com by Ray Benici. It's published in November 2015. It's titled Jewish Empires, Griswold. When people think of early New England, one of the many things that comes to mind are infamous witch trials of the late 17th century, of which Connecticut was quite an active participant, with more than 40 people tried as witches and at least 10 of them executed. As the actions of those earlier indicates, during the dark times in our state's history, the belief in, in and fear of supernatural creatures was quite strong. Not only were witches a source of concern, so was the devil himself. Evident, evidenced by no less than 34 places in Connecticut named in his honor as it were. Its general sense of apprehension in regard to the supernatural was so deep-rooted and powerful that nearly 200 years after the last supposed witch was hanged, people were still paranoid and somewhat ignorant enough to believe that the states could be besieged by vampires. <clears throat> and it, in this fertile burning ground of fear in the year of 1854, where the renowned tale of Jewish city vampires take place, Ajeka would not be published by Bram Stoker for another 40 years. The type of parasitic entities that Connecticut residents thought existed were not be the banal, debonair romantic bloodsuckers of fiction, Far from Count Vlad, Edward, or Lestat. The vampires in the mid 19th century were thought to be the undead, arising zombie like from the grave to find nourishment in the blood of family members. In this particular case, the family was the Rays of Jewett City, who over the course of nine years lost multiple family members to consumption, which is now known as tuberculosis. The first to die from the mysterious disease was 24 year old son, Lamal, in 1845. And four years later, family patriarch Henry B. Ray was felled by the same disease. He was followed to the grave in the same manner by 26-year-old son, Alicia, only two years afterward. Three short years later, in 1854, eldest son, Henry, became stricken with a now all-too-familiar sentence. That is when a true panic set in. Now convinced that they were dealing with something well beyond normal disease, the family somehow decided that the untimely demise were being caused by the dead relatives arising from the grave during the night and trying to feast on blood of the living. Something drastic needed to be done and done quickly. According to the newspaper accounts of the time, it was this pure intent of protecting the living that the decomposing bodies of Lamal and Alicia were dug up and burned immediately. Although it appears the body of Joseph Sr. was spared, it was believed that the incendiary action did the trick. History does not 
record a specific date for Henry's Henry demise, so it's thought that he survived his affliction. Interestingly, Aaron's was discovered in the 1990s that there may have been other earlier suspected vampires outside the very family. In neighboring Holtville, 29 graves were unearthed in Omar's cemetery of the Walton family, who lived only two miles from the race farm about 50 years earlier in the early 18th century. Upon archaeological examination, it was determined that one of the bodies, which had been decimated by consumption, had apparently had been dug up after it was buried, bored, buried. Had his head removed, was left of the skeleton face down, and his finger bones crossed over the chest. Other Walton family members had also evidently died from consumption. This is only speculation, but it seems as though the consumption started ravaging the race. Someone probably had recalled that a similar situation had befallen the Waltons decades before, taking cues from how the Waltons had stopped their vampiric epidemic. The same type of tried and true preventive action, i.e. re-killed dead, may, may have been employed by the race. It seems as though there were other cases throughout New England where this kind of action had occurred, a chronicle in Michael E. Bell's Food for the Dead on Trail of New England's Vampires. It may seem extreme and in retrospect, was, we know it wasn't necessary, but making extra sure dead stay dead made everyone feel better. That doesn't suck, right? And, uh, I found an article on the, these Jewish vampires. So it's the same thing as that one, but, uh, it goes on to say that the, this, the graves were found by two kids. Yeah, that's from, that one's from Weekend Weird by Greg Newark, July 16th, 2016. Okay. In case you're wondering where you can listen to Muscle's podcast, you can find the Muscle Lunch Podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcasts, and Radio Public. If you want to submit your stories or keep updated on upcoming episodes, join the Muscle Lunch Podcast Facebook group or follow on Twitter at Muscle Lunch P. If you want to send an email, you may send it to Muscle Lunch Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Go to the next one. This one's not really a monster, but it's like a apparently really big guy, really big um, thing in Connecticut. Legend of the Leather Man. Hold on a sec. Alright, I'm back. Okay, the Leather Man. One of the most interesting pieces of Westchester County folklore is the living legend of the Leather Man. The true story of the Leather Man is still shrouded in mystery and controversy. However, even though we may never know the full story of this real person, numerous anecdotes and facts have been collected over the years, and new stories about him are still emerging now, having been kept part of the oral history by various family and families within his territory. There is, there is even a recent book about the Leather Man, Written by Dan DeLuca that sheds some new light on the man. Though not, though not purporting to be a full doc- documentation of his life, the information contained on his site may clear up some of the questions that a visitor to the War Pound Ridge Reservation may have about the Leather Man. In and around the time of the Civil War, around 1816, there were harmless and necessary wanderers roaming the countryside, usually looking for work on various farms or perhaps a meal or place in a barn for the night. During this period, there appeared an area of eastern Connecticut in Westchester and Putnam County, New York, a wandering hermit who was not to be forgotten. Came to the doors of farm kitchens, presenting a striking appearance with his homemade leather outfit, asking for neither work nor lodging, but making it clear that he would accept a meal. He did not speak, but seemed to mumble incomprehensibly, and made an impression on those who were generous to him by returning regularly every month or so for another visit and he kept these regular visits up all the year round farm says in some cases for more than 25 years gradually though research of, of reporters and word of mouth it became clear that this strangely attired figure who kept his inner world to himself was indeed covering a large area of territory 
and his wanderings. Completing a regular circuit in Connecticut that covered the route from north of Danbury toward Waterbury and following towns along the Connecticut River to Long Island Sound. And then, starting west, largely tore around New Haven and Bridgeport as far as Newark, where he headed towards New York State by way of New Canaan and Wilton. Thus, it appears that in between his Connecticut circuit, he would visit Westchester and Putnam counties, visiting such towns as Purdue's Hinscoat Village, South Salem, Crookton Falls, Yorktown, Shelby Oak, Bedford Hills, and Briarcliff. It appears that occasionally he continues on Island Sound route, visiting such towns as Greenwich, Rye, and Mamaronek, a more southerly entry into the county. One estimate of his full journey was that his route covered approximately 365 miles and took him over a month to do, including about 240 miles through Connecticut and 125 miles through New York. The Leatherman's timetable was set up so that he arrived in a separate locality each day. The timing was so exact that housewives along this path could set their clocks by him. There are several features of the Leatherman's life and appearance that gave us a deeper understanding of his identity and personality. This was his preoccupation with leather, his hermetic-like existence in local caves, his craving for tobacco, and his remarkable appetite. It is clear that the other man was obsessed with leather, who would visit leather, harness shops, harness, harness shops, except donations of leather scraps, which he sewed together himself to his outlandish outfit. His clothing consisted of a leather hat with visor, a pair of trousers, which went, which, which went up well to his chest, held by suspenders, a leather greatcoat ascended just over the knees, and a pair of wooden soled shoes with leather tops. He, al- he also had a bag of leather and carried a cane. In the winter months, he wore a scarf under his coat. His costume, weighing a mere 60 pounds, presented a patchwork effect. Another lacing was rather crude in his workmanship. They say that one could hear the leather creak as he walked by, and there were some that said you could smell the leather man coming. Of particular interest to our story is the leather man's footwear. The clogs that he made closely resemble a type of wooden and leather shoe sabots worn by the peasants of northern France and Belgium. Another man seemed to prefer keeping to himself, living alone in caves or rock shelters that he discovered on his route at regular intervals. He kept his cave very neat with a pine bow or leaf bed, with a fresh supply of wood always stacked up to, for his next visit. He did not hunt or fish to anyone's knowledge, and his interest in caves seems to be part of his withdrawn behavior. Some of the more well-known caves that he used in Westchester include Bulls Hills Cave in Bedford Hill behind the Mobile Station, Heckler's Cave in Armonk, just beyond the Bowling Alley, and Leatherman's Cave at War Pound Ridge Reservation near Honey Hollow Road. The Leatherman smoked a pipe and enjoyed his tobacco. He picked up cigar butts along his way and gradually accepted offerings of fresh tobacco or cigars. Townsfolk would press that townfolk would press to his hand as he walked silently through the villages. Perhaps due to his constant smoking towards the end of his life, he developed a severe lip cancer, which ate away the side of his cheek, apparently causing him much discomfort and possibly being one of the main causes of his death. Leatherman was known to eat whole loaves of bread, boxes of crackers, oh, all at one sitting, and loved his coffee, where, which is the only food he took for himself at his campsites. Several families mentioned that he looked, they looked so forward to regular visits of Leatherman, the wives baked especially for his arrival, sometimes even getting him, giving him an extra loaf which he would put in his bag. Another part, important part of Leatherman's personality Worth mentioning is that he never harmed a soul, and under his rather terrifying appearance was a harmless and gentle person. He is known to have lost his temper only a few times, shaking his cane and shouting at children who pelted him with rocks. An understandable response, however. 
What was it that drove this man on his only initiary, and why was he so obsessed with leather? The answer to those questions may never be known, but a story did appear in a local paper, the Waterbury Daily American, that purported to be the true revelation of his identity. The story has never been verified and was even retracted by the very newspaper that published the claims not long afterwards. The, the disproven story is that the other man was a Frenchman known as Jules Bourglet of the city of Lyon. Allegedly, when younger, the young man had a promising career in a leather factory and was engaged to the factory owner's daughter. Due to a severe oversight on his part, he either accidentally tipped over a Latin lantern late one night and burnt the factory down, or another version said he made a serious error in the counts, which he kept, causing a big loss to the business. The story says he lost his job and was disowned by his fiancé's father. Having lost all his hopes in life, he took a packet boat to America and became the leather man, doing penance for the rest of his life and following existence of torturous isolation and self-imposed physical hardship. It is, it is a good tragic story and has been part of the legend for a long time, but newspapers that made up the story retracted it multiple times after publication and has been demonstrated to be false by several authorities, including Dan Luca's 2008 book, about the other man. Mr. DeLuca has said his best guess was that the other man was of French Canadian descent with possible Native American ancestry. The first point is purported by the other man's document travels as far as north as Montreal and Vermont in 1870 decade, as well as the French prayer book found in his possession upon his death. The second point is more of an educated guess as that as various graves since he kept native herb and vegetable gardens. The other man survived the blizzard of 1888, but at the end of winter of 1889, he was found dead in his cave on a Dell farm in Barcliffe. Because he was such a well-known personality, a coroner's request was held during which some interesting facts were brought to light. These facts give a clue to his identity. The other man's, man's bag was examined at, the inquest, at this inquest, was found to contain leather working equipment such as scissors and awls, wedges, a small axe, and an extra axe head and other equipment that made the sack unusually heavy considering the leather man carried the Spartan as he walked. Of much interest is the fact that the bag contained a small prayer book, which was in French. <coughs> this piece of information, combined with the French-style footwear, may allow us to conclude that the leather man may well have been a Frenchman or French-Canadian. The Frenchman is buried in Sparta Cemetery in Osney, New York. Heston incorrectly identifying him as Jules Bourglet of Lyon, France, was placed on the grave by a local story historical societies in 1953, or that from 1889 to 1953, his only grave marker was a metal pipe which may have been removed in the intervening years. Leatherman's grave site at Sparta Cemetery was exhumed in 2011 in an attempt to find and recollect his remains. No bones or evidence was found other than some nails, possibly coffin nails. The dirt and nails were recollected to another site at the cemetery, and the large headstone marked simply other man was placed at the new site, placed in the 1953 stone march with a name that was never his. Excavations were conducted in Leatherman's cave on the Warpound Ridge Reservation, and though no diagnostic artifacts were found that directly related to the Leatherman, the soil yielded a large quantity of grease that had penetrated quite deep into the cave floor, which was perhaps a vestige of Leatherman's cooking activities there. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about Leatherman, you can watch the Trailside Nature's Museum's documentation video at Warpound Ridge Federation inquire about bringing a school or scout group for the museum's other man's field trip. The museum, the museum staff can bring information by hiking to his cave. Another man's loose 10 kilometer trail run is an animal held alien at the reservation, at the reservation and opportunity to reflect upon the life of this most unusual man. In case you're wondering where you can listen to Monster Lunch podcast, 
You can find the Monsters Podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcasts, and Radio Public. If you want to submit your stories or keep updated on upcoming episodes, join the Monsters Podcast Facebook group or follow on Twitter at MonsterLizardP. If you want to send an email, you may send it to MonsterLizardPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Okay, this is a, a story oracle from Heart Fruit Current by Peter Matika. Hope you say your name right. Published August 21st, 2014. A mysterious creature that once haunted Glastonbury. It was a creature that let out blood curdling yells at night. It was described as witnesses who saw it as a large dog with a cat like face. Small dogs disappeared or were found mutilated along with goats and sheep. And so the legend of the Glastonbury Claw Walkus began. It was the middle of a cold, snowy winter in 1939 when Hartford Current ran a story of hunting of a hunting party that went into the wilds, Glastonbury, in search of the creature. It was a headline writer's dream as newspapers front page read Gufus of Glastonbury, Glacos Creek, Gloomy Gang of Gunners. The search party turned up nothing. The Glacos was still loose in the snow covered hills of Glastonbury Tuesday night. Victor Arnold Wiles of the best huntsman in these parts. Read January 18th article until they're sure the scientific term of Glawakas will be used. Name come from Glastonbury in his habitat and from Wacky to describe the way everyone feels about the whole thing. The ending make it sound Latin and, un- and authentic. The current printing a map showing the story, the area of the three big Glawakas hunts and pinpointing bits of Glawakina areas where dogs and other domestic animals killed or mauled. Areas Glawakas heard howling, areas where Glawakas was seen, and dogs chased something, dogs chased something locations. The signs and hunts were confined to the wilderness portion of southern and eastern parts of town. Some believe the creature was a mountain lion that escaped from Manchester, Vermont Zoo after the Great Hurricane of 1938. Because the animal is out of its native habitat, the animal is probably restless, Warren Charles Alhouse said. It might move on import it some distance away in a short time. However, it will probably stay around as long as there is enough or to meet the needs of mountain lion's habitat appetite. Others thought the creature may be a lynx. I never saw a Glawakas, said a New Britain policeman in a January 23rd article. But I'll bet this animal over there in Gasberry isn't one. I'll be I bet it's a lynx. Four years ago there were two lynxes off here in the Pinnacle Pinnacle Mountains. They were mates and nobody caught or killed them. You have the whole family around these parts by now. A lone hunter to see the creature was Hartfordite William F. Bonvolaire. Bonvolaire? Bonvolaire? I don't know. Anyway, in a wilderness near Diamond Lake, when a beautiful black creature, about three feet long, with tail two feet long, leaped out of the scrubwood in front of them. Bonvolaire brought up his shotgun and cut loose with the right barrel, according to current article. The 12 gauge charge bit into a rotten tree stump as the star cat began zigzagging throughout the underbrush. A second shot misfired as the cat kicked back sprays of snow. As they fled into a stretch of green cedars. But once a legend is born, it was hard to resist the pull of myth. There was a community dance called the Black Cloud Glawakas Ball. An oracle ran about the children making a Glawakas man in the snow. Hunting clubs made Glawakas progress from members to shoot. Even local poets were inspired. The Glastonbury Lion, <coughs> or Raw Cat, where is he? Perhaps it's some poor tabby now hiding in a tree, but if it's the great safari, its big game, could not stalk. Through wood and open landscape, it had a lovely walk. The fever began to die down when a large brown dog was killed in July by hunters. The headline from July 7th, 1939 read, Mysterious Glawakas is no more. The dog was taken in the baited bear trap 
shot and buried in an unmarked grave. In a few days, the beast was caught and a bullet ended its suffering, read the article. A few persons witnessed the incident and they decided to bury the animal and say no more about it. Oh, there. You see anything? After that, Glacowakis was seen no more and one by one, read a 1958 article marking the 20th anniversary. Glacowakis man admitted the dog probably was a terrible monster. Well, maybe, perhaps. So others waited until Milltown Barmers one night reported seeing a strange beast passing through that they said, mu said must have been him. Bottom line, the legend of the Glacowakis sold in its newspapers <clears throat> and brought some excitement to the sleepy town during a long winter. It can't talk. It revealed the botany relieved. Sorry, relieved botany of a dreary winter on July 8th. Antero note noted it provided small talk for uncounted dinner tables. Just as the subject of the hurricane began to pall, it got any member of ordinarily slothful individuals into the open air. Now it is dead. But if one knows the cousin Barry, it will rise again. It was too useful to remain long buried. There's more on a Glowakis from the Cryptid Wiki. The Glowakis is a creature seen in Glastonbury, Connecticut, and Fizzleburg, Massachusetts. And it's in the tradition of learned jacks. In the latter incident, it's reported that to have tagged livestock. It's said to have a strong resemblance to a mix between a bear, panther, and lion. I, I, an eyewitness report states that I was working as a young reporter on the Hartford Current that year when World War II was in the wings. We, but we were pre preoccupied with the developing story about this Glastonbury creature that howled at night. Slipped in and out of view and caused dogs, cats, and small farm animals to disappear. As sightings grew in number, so did the varied descriptions. First, there was a huge cat. Then, some people reported it what looked like a dog in back and a cat in front. Others said it, it vice versa. One man called to say he had seen a big animal in a pitched bark with eyes that glowed like embers. It was clear to us that this weird, unknown animal needed a name. One another coined the word Clackwakis, Gla for Glastonbury, Wack for Wacky, us as a proper Latin ending. Cost on like magic, and Safari was organized with two Ozark trained pounds, but was unsuccessful. In case you're wondering where you can listen to Monsterlands podcasts, you can find the Monsterlands podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcasts, and Radio Public. If you want to submit your stories or keep updated on upcoming episodes, join the Monsterlands podcast Facebook group or follow on Twitter at Monsterlands P. Want to send an email? You may send it to Monsterlands Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Okay. Walkers. Okay, next one. So, um, the CT Files Legend of the Wasted Wildman by Ray Pedinci, published November, February 11th, 2015. It's hard not to smile when you start writing about Bigfoot, the legendary ape like creature that supposedly stalked the worst of North America for centuries. The hairy and conveniently reclusive hominid is mostly associated with the most wilds of the Pacific Northwest, but it has allegedly been seen in every state and nation, including Connecticut. That's right, over the past century or so, Sasquatch has been reportedly spotted more than a dozen times here, mostly in the woodsy northern reaches of Leachfield County. Although there has never been except, ex, ex, uh, exceptions, one 1953 counter with a seven-foot tall creature covered in dark brown hair, the primate's face, and arms down its knees was reported in the White Hills region of Selton. And in 2013, the expertly popular finding Bigfoot TV crew came to the hit came to Connecticut to investigate a sighting, although it was generally believed that it had only been a camera-shy black bear. In that vein, our favorite unofficial Bigfoot-like legend is that the Winstead Wildman, which terrorized locals on two separate occasions, almost 80 years apart, you know, if you believe the stories. <laughs> the tale starts on August 27th, 19... 
1895, when the Winstead Evening Citizen ran a story which also ran the next day in his sister publication, the Winstead Herald, claiming that large man, stark naked and covered with hair all over his body, ran out of a clump of bushes. It was witnessed by town selectman Riley Smith, who was picking out blueberries in the area of Colebrook with his faithful bulldog Ned when the counter occurred. Something had spooked the hound, causing it to whimper and come crawling with the tail between his legs. Moments later, the wild man emerged, cried out, scrambled off at lightning speed. Both Smith and Ned were paralyzed with fear. A few weeks later, the Herald ran a following-up story in which Smith described as a man who talks but, but little and of undoubted pluck and nerve. His word is first class, provided more details about the wild man, describing it as a wild, hairy man in the woods, six foot in height. He had the man's hair was black and hung down along his shoulders, and that his hair, body was thick and covered with black hair. The man was remarkably, remarkably agile, and to all appearance it was a muscular, brawny man, a man against whom any ordinary man would stand little chance. Over the next few weeks, the wild man apparently continued to run amok, threatening sensational paper-selling headlines, and both the Herald and assistant, a local man named George Hawkins, reportedly saw the wild man stealing two chickens from his henhouse. Two women from New York claimed they saw a large, strange animal standing on tiny legs, possibly a gorilla escaped from some circus. They thought during a visit, local chief of police Steve Wheeler reported that they had sighted in a given chase for losing trail in a nearby swamp. And so the man, <coughs> and so the mania grew. One witness, one witness Jim Madra, even boasted that he had snapped a picture of the mysterious man beast. Unfortunately, the photograph showed a normal man who, although had produced shock of hair, was otherwise not particularly hair her suit. When questioned, Madra explained that the camera had been so startled by the wild man that it could. It couldn't see straight. Words, word of the wild man spread, and soon reporters, reporters from across the region were sending upon Winston in hope of getting a glimpse. Eventually, a reward was offered for the wild man's capture. A search party, more than 100 men strong and well armed, was organized and dispatched. Despite a thorough search, while Willie Wildman was apparently to a step ahead, imagining an elude capture. At one point, the Hofford Stone Day Globe speculated that the wild man may have been an escaped mental patient named. Arthur Beckwith. Beckwith had completely freed himself from local asylums to wander countryside all natural and live off the land, never harming anyone but causing a big, a bit of ruckus. Like so many, so like so much of the Wildman's tale, this was never confirmed. <clears throat> As science lessened over ascending weeks, reporters left and the Wildman buzzed slowly fizzed. The story was chronicled in the West End Wildman and other tales. In a nineteen twenty nine tome by Frank Wynne Wentworth. But the case passed, so did the Wildman, from the public consciousness for a while anyway. In July 1972, the Wildman allegedly reappeared after nearly eight decades. The Harvard Current reported that two young men observed a strange man-like creature on Winchester Road near Crystal Lake Reservoir. They claimed to have seen at a distance an over hominid, about eight feet tall and covered with hair, that eventually disappeared into the woods. When suggested that they may have seen a large bear, they replied, it was no bear. Two years later, in September 1974, the wild man was seen again, this time by two couples parked at night by Rug Brick Reservoir. They told the police they were terrified by witnessing a 6-foot, 300-pound creature covered with dark-colored hair in the moonlight. It had fled immediately, and subsequent search failed to turn up at any evidence. Since then, there have been no official sightings of the Winston wild man. Of course, like all good legends, there doesn't seem to be a preponderance of actual facts or evidence to bolster the Wildman's existence. Many of those who had researched the story tend to think that the original signs by Riley Smith might have been 
greatly embellished or flat out manufactured by the editor of the original Wednesday newspaper to spur sales during a slow news cycle, and then was fanned by optimistic promotions by public panic and subsequent misidentification of bears and other more mundane woodland fauna. In other words, no one let the truth get in the way of a good and wild story. In case you're wondering where you can listen to Muscle Lunch Podcasts, you can find the Muscle Lunch Podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcasts, and Radio Public. If you want to submit your stories or keep updated on upcoming episodes, join the Muscle Lunch Podcast Facebook group or follow on Twitter at Muscle Lunch P. If you want to send an email, you may send it to Muscle Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you. <coughs> this is a little, this one's the mass little thing about the Ma Kawesigu from AWS.org. Uh, these are pronouns for to the race of little people, singular forms referring to one such creature as our Makoese, Makoese, a production from the Mohegan Pequot tribes, but usually, uh, Meskwe are the little people of the Mohegan and Pequot tribes. They can be dangerous if they are disrespected, but generally benevolent nature spirits. Makoese are scarcely described as knee height around two feet tall. The name Meskwe derives from the Mohegan Pequot word for the whoop. Per Will Burr, which they are associated. Muscovy are said to be carved symbols on rocks and have magical powers, including the ability to make themselves invisible. The leader of Muscovy, Granny Squat, is a powerful magician married to the cultural hero Masuwa. And a story for little people of Muscovy, Muscovy, little people. Okay. The, the rocks of Mogan Hill are the homes of the Makia Sub, or little people. After nightfall, the call of this Whipper Will signals the arrival. They are good spirits. The Mohegans know they must be treated with respect. According to tradition, it is important to leave baskets of food such as corn, cakes, and berries, or even meats in the woods for them. Wearing muskin flowers or shoes, they gather the gifts at night. In fact, muskin means whip poor will muskin. They have their own rules of etiquette. Those who see the little people should not directly look at them. They think it's rude. If they catch you staring, they might point a finger at you, bring you into the ground while they take you or blinds. Another rule is don't speak of them in the summer when they are most active. When returning for kindness, they taught the big people how to grow corn and use healing plants. They keep the earth well and grant favor for those who honor their ways. When the English settlers came and disrupted the traditional way of vegan life, many forgot to help the Maquia Wisco. As a result, many Mohegans and Muscovy fell ill. At this time of bad spirits, there lived a medicine woman. One night, during a terrible storm, she heard a whip or will. When she looked outside, the bird wasn't to be found, but a small boy stood in the rain on her doorstep. It turned out he was a f- grown muskrat named Wigan, who told her to come help someone who was sick. Though the f- storm was fierce, he led her through the woods along a long way. Suddenly, the storm seemed to stop. As it began to descend into the ground, there were in the realm of the little people. Wigan led her to a beehive-shaped chamber of rocks. Inside, a very sm- a very old woman lay in bed, very ill. The Musquin told the medicine woman this was Granny Squanant, who must be made well. Granny Squanant is very powerful, and she is known to cause storms when she argues with her husband. Her illness was the reason for this storm. Worse, healers often look to Granny Squanant when the need is dire for help and healing. And here she is, here she was, the one who was sick. The medicine woman treated Granny Squanant for nearly a moon before she got better. In return for restoring Granny Squant's health, the Musquin gave the medicine woman a basket of gifts and told her to remember them. She was blindfolded and taken back home. Only when she returned did she open the basket. Inside were quartz crystals, paint skins, and bunches of herbs. According to the legends, Mohegans left baskets like this one shown 
but filled with food, so respectful to little people. It's like, a, it's like a woven basket. In case you're wondering where you can listen to Muscle Lunch Podcasts, you can find the Muscle Lunch Podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcasts, and Radio Public. If you want to submit your stories or keep updated on upcoming episodes, join the Muscle Lunch Podcast Facebook group or follow on Twitter at Muscle Lunch P. If you want to send an email, you may send it to Muscle Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Okay, some more Rick, RickardJournal.com. Third by Thursday, Legendary Black Dog of the Reading Hanging Hills by Ryan Chist- Chi Chester, December 6, 2018. Hover Park is considered one of the Marine's greatest attractions, Castle Greg, which overlooks the peaks from above. It's one of the highest points within 25 miles of the shoreline on the East Coast, offering beautiful views of New England. But as local legend has it, those beautiful views can be quickly turned to fatal ones once a black dog enters the frame. The first written account of the legend of the Black Dog of West Peak traces back to 1898, and the story has captivated residents and hackers of Silver City and beyond ever since. As the myth suggests, the Black Dog roams around the western regions of the Hanging Hills, where the Radio Tower currently stands. The canine makes no sound when it barks, nor leaves any prints in the ground when it walks. For those who venture to hills and spot the canine for the first time, it is believed to be a sign of joy. Seeing the dog again, not that, that signifies sorrow. A third sighting means death. A story of the black dog was described in chilling detail in an 1899, 1898 article in the Connecticut Quarterly, authored by W.H.C. Pichon. Pichon? Pichon? Uh, most accounts believe that Pichon was writing from his own experiences, but a reading record story from 1949 suggests that Pichon could have been telling a story based on the experience of a mysterious unnamed man with initials F.S. However, however a later archive from the Morning Record in 1977 does state that it was Pinchon himself who encountered the black dog with deadly results. As the article in the quarterly goes, Pichon, a geology student at Harvard, was hiking and studying the Hanny Hills when he saw a black dog who would who wound up following him for hours. Pichon describes the dog as a short-haired black dog of moderate size, with nothing particularly noticeable in its actual appearance. Dog appearance events that followed were. Pichon called the dogs leaving behind no footprints, or kick of any dust on what was a dry summer day. A dog mysteriously disappeared. Pachon explained the experience to his friend, Harbert Marshall, of the U.S. Geological Society, who informed Pachon of the local myth. Marshall ever even claimed to have seen the dog twice himself while in the area, though balked at the idea of the myth holding any truth. Three years later, the two returned to the West Point Peak together for more study. While scaling the edge of one of its cliffs, there was a dog looking down on them from the peak above. According to Pichon, Marshall's face went white at the sight of the animal. I did not believe it before. I believe it now. This is the third time, Marshall said to Pichon, before a grog gave out at his feet. Marshall let out a cry forward, tumbling to his death. It was the third time he saw a dog. For Pichon, it was his second. It was somebody's sorrow, and he had just watched his friend die. Pichon wrote that he quickly sought to help of a group of men from nearby house, and a man claimed to have seen a black dog standing over Marshall's body when they went to retrieve it. Pichon was officially a believer and Knowledge of its fate in his article. I know something, I shall see it again for the third and last time, Pachon wrote. That third time came six years later, this time in the cold winter months, and Pachon disappeared. According to an article in the New York Herald, his body was found ten days later, on almost the same spot where his friend Herbert Marshall met his death six years ago. According to an article, Pachon's death was the fifth that occurred near the area in the previous 30 years. Claimed sightings of the dog were less frequent after Pachon's death, but the legend continues. He can be found in Patricia Edwards Klein's Ghostly Animals America, published in 1977. 
David Phillips, a former English and folklore professor at Eastern Connecticut State University, who tells stories of the black dog to crowds and numerous public gatherings, including the Walford Public Library in late, late 1980s to mid-1990s. He also knows that stories in his book, Legendary Connecticut Traditional Tales from the Nutmeg State. Diane Smith, formerly of WTNH, previously did a four-minute news segment on the legend of the black dog and storytelling nights at a Solomon Golfing House on North Colony Street around Halloween which consists of rumblings of the black dog. The blocker even claimed that Meredith's resident had a photographic encounter with the dog back near Castle Greg in 2006. To this day, curious explorers still search West Peak, hoping to catch a glimpse of the legendary canine. Those who search out the black dog will never hear it coming, and if they see it, it will likely hope it for, it's for the last time. In case you're wondering where you can listen to Monster Lunch Podcasts, you can find the Monster Lunch Podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcasts, and Radio Public. If you want to submit your stories or keep updated on upcoming episodes, join the Monster Lunch Podcast Facebook group or follow on Twitter at Monster Lunch P. If you want to send an email, you may send it to Monster Lunch Podcasts at gmail.com. Thank you. Um, it's from damncannikit.com. Again, by Ray Medici, published December 2016. Sea monsters and servants line up the Haunted Island Sound. With his maritime heritage, it is no surprise that Connecticut also had a rich history of sea monster and sea serpent sightings. For centuries, Connecticut has been dependent on the sea. Native Americans spent a great deal of time on the water, fishing, harvesting oysters. Once the first Europeans arrived, thousands of livelihoods have been made by fishing, lobstering, clamming, whaling, and catching other delicious water critters. Our coast has been critical to the settlement and development of the nation, not only because of the abundance of trading posts, but also due to its vital role in the shipbuilding industry. Literally thousands of ocean-growing vessels have been launched from the shores of Connecticut. In short, we've been on the sea a lot. I wish, as such, eyes have been on the waves for hundreds of years. There have been numerous sightings of unusual creatures in the waters around Connecticut. Accounts of monsters being seen in New England state back to 1638, when newspapers started being printed, such events began to be chronicled on a more regular basis. Like in much of the world where the sea plays an important role, there has been accounts of giant water snakes and squids, as well as more unusual creatures such as mermaids. The site detailing the history of lordship in Stanford had an excellent page dedicated to historical sea serpent sightings, as well as a mermaid sighting. Until the entire page is well worth reading, here are a few gems. From September 17, 1878, a sighting off the shore of Stanford by Mr. Kelly, a super truck worthy man, not far from the side of his vessel, he saw the head of a monster raised several feet above the waves. The hour above sunset was light enough to show the creature plainly. It was seemingly not 15 rods off. It was a horrible-looking head with a wide-open mouth. The head disappeared and a portion of his body was shown, forming an arc along which it had been, had been easy so far as space is concerned to have driven a team of oxen. There were several smaller curves, making a long body. The object disappeared in a few seconds before Mr. Kelly Standing alone in the midship gangway, could call anyone to see it. The tribe's body as being as large, round as that of a big horse. <clears throat> July 18th, 1895. The first person narrative of Captain Obdiah Donaldson, who, whose crew literally fought off a 60 foot wide octopus, 100 foot long arms after accidentally crashing into it. He was in a deep sleep, and the snores could be heard quite a way off. I was too, but I was too late. The boat struck his, him amidships. He woke in a jiffy. At first, he thought he wore, but he rubbed his eyes and defied us, us as enemies. Though heaven, no, I had no wish to fight him. He darted at us, kicking up the sea. One of his long arms came aboard and seized the forward stem of windlass. He, his 
he wound his arm around it, thinking, I suppose, it, that it was a sailor. Mate, with its great presence of mind, startled Wallace, and in less than time, it takes to tell it a couple of hundred feet of the arms whirls round it, and we had to fish a prisoner, but we caught a tar. He ran to pull up the boat. I was afraid he meant to sink it, and it was at his leisure. The vessel rocked, and I thought we capsized every minute. I talked to Frank Taylor, the boatswain, to cut off the arms. He did so with a meat chopper. Eventually, the octopus was run off by a group of por porpoises. July 18th, 1909. The tale is Jeffrey Lighthouse Keeper, who grunted an odd creature from the water that was stealing his chickens. Pulling off the gun, Mr. Johnson let fly with both barrels. There were a great pain, a sound of some heavy body struggling on the sand, and all still. Getting a lantern, Mr. Johnson found on the beach a huge fish-like fish that like of which he never saw before. It resembled a flatfish or a skate, as much as anything, only it was nearly a yard long and was afterward found to be weigh 60 pounds. The beast was almost black in color, differed from, from a flatfish that had, and that had a mouth that extended the power width of its head, it was armed with large, sharp teeth, those of a shark. The mouth was distended. Was large enough to occupy a derby hat. One of the creature, in fact, sent it a row of sharp spines with all over each eye, which was a large as that of a human being. It was a filler, fully foot in length, a strange part of the whole fish, with friends on the other side of two flippers, identically like those of a turtle. What the, what the fuck is that? So, friends, I've not only been spotted in the sound as 1986 story from New York Times details are about how a 100 foot monster was encountered on the way up to Kent River in Gronsville. From the story, out of the froth rose a big black head, as large as a flower barrel, and with eyes as big as small plates. The head kept rising to get higher and higher until the seven feet of the neck appeared. Men did not make a long, a thorough examination, but they felt sure that the sea creature, sea serpent, may, must have been a clear hundred feet long. Arco goes on to say that fight many people coming out to see the creature was not seen again. Sometimes it wasn't always a pitched battle between man and beast. A witness in his July. 3rd, 1881 article from the Times. On a yacht, with a party of New London gentlemen came across a veritable sea serpent between Montauk and Block Island, who, as the yacht passed, he raised his head and took a survey of the surroundings. He was the color of golf weed, malted with black spots, and was about 40 feet long. Apparently, the creature was out for a pleasure cruise like gentlemen aboard the ship. Obviously, many of these sea serpents are forced to fall, uh, fall under carry of fictional fish stories, while others are most likely exaggerated descriptions of counters with genuine out-of-place denizens of this ocean, such as oarfish or manatees. Of course, there's always a chance that a few stories are genuine. The ocean is the big place, of which we haven't even explored a fraction yet. Without any physical evidence, these reports will just remain stories. Although sea surface science have declined justly over the last century, unusual, unusual things are still seen from time to time. In October 2008, an identified creature was washed up on the New London Beach, which drew a lot of monster speculation because it was essentially identified as a badly decomposed raccoon. So we have no particular monster associated with the state, say like Nessie or Champ, although we've heard tales about Trampy, a serious creature that haunts the Trap Falls Reservoir in Shelton. And by have heard tales, you mean have heard, tried to fabricate our own urban legend to no success. Still, we continue to hear stories of sea monsters and other freakish water creatures Connecticut no longer has access to the coast, which won't be for a very long, long time. Despite countless hours landing about at Connecticut beaches, as well as occasional trip out on the sound, we have yet to see any fear, fierce sea beastie. If you go, the Connecticut coast and Long Island Sound are pretty much open to everybody. 
send south from anywhere in the state, and eventually you'll hit the water. If you ever see any sea serpent or monsters frogging around sound, please let us know. Like always, we'll post any pictures of unusual creatures spotted near our shores. Uh, it's an article from by Natalie Clinton, March 21st, March 24th, 2018. Few people know the frightening history of the giant sea serpent, river giant river serpent in Connecticut. Tales of monsters living submerged underneath the Earth's waters are nothing new. This monster is probably the most notorious aquatic legend around. But did you know that river serpent have been sighted quite a few times right here in Connecticut? The first recorded sightings of the Connecticut River monster was documented in the New York Times in 1886. According to the publication, two men encountered the beast while in a small boat near Cromswell. The men reported that a sea serpent over 100 feet long hit their boats and threw them into the air. Unfortunately, they landed in the boat and were unable to safely return to the shore. In 1994, sea serpent was again spotted near a bridge across the river. In an article in the Boston Herald, the monster was described as being a giant snake that was black with white stripes on its underside and rose out of the water six feet. There have been other signs of the frightening river serpent since, 19, since 1894, but the counters were not as close as the two previously described. Some people say it is all a big hoax, while others believe that anything is possible. Some, river, some residents think that the river serpent may have been its home in the whole river tunnel underneath our capital city, Hartford. If that's the case, who knows when the river might reappear on the river for all to see. Did you know about river monsters that has been sighted in the Connecticut River? Do you believe it's real or just a bunch of hogwash? Let us know your thoughts in the comment section. In case you're wondering where you can listen to Monster Lunch Podcasts, you can find the Monster Lunch Podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcasts, and Radio Public. If you want to submit your stories or keep updated on upcoming episodes, join the Monster Lunch Podcast Facebook group or follow on Twitter at MonsterLizardP. If you want to send an email, you may send it to MonsterLizardPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Okay, this one's like the probably the like, most famous like like um, monster of Connecticut, uh, I would say. The Mullenhead is from the New England Historical Society. The Mullenheads of Connecticut. Every New England town claim a ghost and many have a witch in their past, but the Mullenheads belong to only a handful of places in southwestern Connecticut. Mullenheads live on the outskirts of town on heavily wooded country roads known as Mullenhead Roads. Silent Hill Road, for example, is, <coughs> is Mifflet Hills Mullenhead Road. Sawmill City Road is Tilton's. Mullenheads also supposedly live on the outskirts of Monroe, Shafford, Seymour, Weston, Easton, Oxford, Southbury, Fairfield, New Haven, and Trumbull. They look, they look like small humanoids with oversized heads. They rarely come out from hiding. It's fried by eating small animals, stray cats, and human flesh, usually the flesh of teenagers. And for runaway teens or hikers who disappear, the Mullenheads serve as a convenient explanation. Stories about deformed country people who who keep to themselves go back at least a century to Europe. For example, a large family of Mullenheads supposedly once lived in Bavaria, Germany in the mid-19th century. An immigrant family of Mullenheads known as Wheelheads were said to live outside Rosbury, England around 1900. According to another theory, the term Mullenhead may stem from Melungeon, which describes a mixed race of people of Appalachia. They had an ancestry of European outcasts, freed slaves, and Native Americans, and they kept to themselves. Mullenhead stories surfaced in Connecticut around after World War II, a time when people moved away from cities into suburban suburb, suburbs. They probably reflect the New York ex-urbanites' prejudice and fear of isolated rural folk. But how did the Mullenheads end up in Connecticut? One theory claims they came from a family accused of witchcraft and banished into the wilderness, where they survived and in, inbred. Through centuries of inbreeding, they mutated into melonheads. 
According to another theory, the Mullen heads escaped from Bayfield Hills Hospital, a now abandoned mental institution or Garner Correctional Institute, which specializes in inmates with mental health pro problems. Both are Newton, Connecticut. A variation on that theme has the Mullen heads escaping from an untamed mental institution in the 1960s. Building supposedly barn some of the inmates escaped and turned to cannibalism, which caused their heads to swell. Similar Melonhead stories also surfaced in Ohio and Michigan. An evil Dr. Crow supposedly conducted experiments on orphans in Kirtland, Ohio, once part of Connecticut. These children escaped, burned down the orphanage, and retreated into the woods. I mean, I heard about that story, I think. In Michigan, the Melonheads were children with androcephalus, abused in an insane asylum in Ottawa County, eventually released into the woods. Blue Granada. According to the legend, back in the 1980s, a group of girls from Northern Dame High School in Bearville's crowd decided to drive around after a Friday night football game. Piled into a blue Granada and ended up on Velvet Street in Trumbill. They looked for melon heads. The girls parked their car, leaving the headlights on, and ventured into the woods. After they walked a couple of hundred feet, they heard the car door slam. An engine started and the car headed towards them. You see the melon heads inside, the size of children. They had large heads, rags for clothes, and orange glow in their eyes. Some say the melon heads still drive around in that blue Granada. Other less detailed stories describe mysterious figures in the woods. The workers who paved Sawmill City Road and children claimed they heard voices in the woods. Three experts checking the woods for fungal infestation thought they saw strange figures lurking in the underbrush. The legend of Melonheads isn't the only one to evolve deformed humans in Connecticut. Also, have them bury frog people and the faceless people of Monroe. Want to look for them yourself? Blows the list of Mullenhead Roads is also about Connecticut. Emmons Road in Oxford, Bell Street in Drumbill, and Monroe Road between Trashua. Road in Trumbill and Judd Road in Monroe near the eastern border, Silent Hill Road in Milford, roads around Lake Michigan and Lake Mohegan in Bayfield, Region Road in New Haven, Jeremy Swamp Road in Southbury, past ro roads in around Roosevelt Forest in Trafford. Those Danbury frog people about uh urban legends fandom. The Danbury frog people are a family of strange humanoids or words live in Danbury, Connecticut. Fairfield Court County Fairfield County Weekly ran a short mention of the Frog People in 1998, placed them in nearby Bethel. The Frog People were described as possessing large lemon-shaped heads with eyeballs on the sides, thin crusty lips and a wide mouth, and sucking noses and slit nostrils. They have patchy hair that sit upon their unnormally large heads and their bodies are thin and gangly. There are several explanations as to what the creatures could be. Theories include extraterrestrials, a pygmy human subspecies. Most of these accounts from Connecticut Native Brian Hines, the summer from a junior high of high school, junior year of high school, a friend's mother was running a version of Meals on Wheels at a local church. I volunteered to help. Two friends and I would go around Densbury door to door to give out lunches to unfortunates. In one of the houses, in one of my houses, were the frog people. I share a family name I can't remember. They wouldn't come to the door, and we were told to knock on the door and then leave the food there. Meeting Chief's kids, we would hide and wait. I never got awesome views, but the door would crack open and the hand would come out. We would snatch the food. A few years later, a year later, sorry, I'm at my local grocery store around 11 a.m. And the same two friends, we were walking down the canned foods aisle, and there, the far person, he had penny loafers and a short-sleeved dress shirt tucked into khaki pants. He's going through soups and gas. He turned and saw us. I tell you what, it's not as it was not as horrific as described. His head was lemon-shaped. He had a bad, lazy eye. His face was sort of stretched. His eyes and nose looked far apart. He had sores on his very thin lips. He really did not have a very foggy appearance, however. He had a normal head of hair. I'll go say to say it was even sort of nice. 
parted on the side. He had a bobble, bobblehead of sort of appearance and was very gangly. The girl came around the corner, blonde hair, pretty well groomed, and added to the creepiness of it. If you saw them from behind, you look totally normal, but if you turn them on around, it's a monster. Now it sounds mean, but they did look like two frogs. They darted away and quickly made their way out of the aisle. One of the most common legends about the frog people is that they do not take kindly to outsiders. Okay, the spaces people are monsters. What about Spaces people. Ow, 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 it hurts. What the hell is that? In the tiny town of Monroe, this is from OFaceFandom.com. In the tiny town of Monroe in Fairfield County, Connecticut, called by the locals the House of the Faceless, Faceless People, legend has it that a group of unfortunates live in this old barn with one caretaker they've ever seen living or enduring it. Presumably, the caretaker goes out only at midnight with his charges so they can at least get some fresh air. The sunlight is not favorable to those individuals who have no face, have no eyes, nose, or ears. It's a mouth outlined with pale lips and bony hands crashing around constantly and trying to find their way in the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Monster Legend Podcast. Or to find more information about Monster Legend Podcast, go to monsterlegendpodcast.com or anchor.fm forward slash monsterlegendpodcast. There you can find all episodes and platforms on which the podcast is on, which you can describe, subscribe to. You also can email me with questions that will be answered on the show. Thank you. Thank you.